I'd like to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 20. We will begin at verse 29 and uh, wrap up chapter 20 and head into that opening portion of chapter 21, which just so happens to be the story of that first Palm Sunday. And you say, man, how did that happen? Well, we planned these things, you guys. Um, back in September. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yes, it is. It just worked out great. Though next Sunday we'll be stepping into a different text because there's a bit of material between here and chapter 27. But, but today, today, it works out so well. As you come to the text and, of course, find your study sheet, um, I'd like you to think with me um, on a day that you know about that I probably don't because it's in your mind, a day when... Everything worked out perfectly. I know, when you're a parent, you have little children, those days don't exist. But I'm saying this, in my life, there have been a few. And it's not like every Thursday or something like that. But, but days when you planned that, that picnic or whatever it was, and it didn't rain. It was 75, and everybody got along, and all the people that were supposed to come did. And they buried the hatchets, not in each other's backs. They were kind to each other. <laughs> There, there was a friendliness, and the kids didn't fight in the car, and, and you finished the day and said, it couldn't have been any better. There are a few days in my life like that. I could tell you stories, as you could tell me. Uh, most of our days aren't like that, though, are they? They're interrupted by stuff and, and illness and sickness and car crashes and flat tires and bad hair days, and the kids did fight in the car. and That's normal life, but there are a few. And I mention all of that to say today's text, I think, is one of those days that Murphy and Murphy's Law didn't come to. I think it's a day when, when it couldn't have been any better. Now, I, I don't want to read too far into the text, but uh, the text does not tell us the weather that day. But I'm just telling you it was 75 degrees and sunny. There were light clouds in the sky, and it was picturesque and perfect, and it was a moment. Now, it's important for you to be thinking normal days that aren't like that and this day because... This day that we're going to look at, this day we call Palm Sunday, this original, it is, a, it is a look ahead to another day, okay? It's a look ahead, even as it plays out in real history, it's a look ahead to another day when Christ will come again and all those things that are broken are healed and made right, okay? So even as we look at this moment and go back, so to speak, in time, be aware that the text just, just screams of a future day. We'll comment on that as we get toward the end of our, of our morning. But our privilege today to come to this text, I love the story here presented. I put it all into the heading of reasons to believe and reasons to celebrate. And we, we do well to drink deeply of, of all that is here, reasons to believe who Jesus is and why he came reasons to celebrate that day and the day that is to come. I want to pray for us, and then let's ask God to, to help us as we come to his word. Our Father, we come, as always, with great expectation that the Spirit of God would use the word of God to teach us and to point us to you and how we need you to do that. Our Father, you see our, our lives, our lives in this world, and things that we, we do with all the, the hours of our days, so full of activity in most cases, and so frequently reminders that it isn't today what it ought to be, and it isn't today what it's going to be someday. 
And so, Father, as we sometimes get those things um, in our in our line of sight and we can hardly see beyond them, so we need you to help us today to look deeply at the text and to allow you to speak hope and peace to us. So do that today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On your study sheet, of course, some words of review and then a, a, just a few comments about the text today. Two sections, really, and we've uh, set up our study this way with that closing half or closing portion of chapter 20 viewed as a lead-in. And I think it is. I think it's a lead-in to what we see with Palm Sunday proper because it looks at the identity of Jesus, which is integral to the whole story, of course. It's a a look at the identity of Jesus. And I put my first section there under the heading of the healer, the son of David, the Passover lamb. I think some of those are obvious, and I'll comment on the third uh, somewhere along the way here today. But an amazing moment, amazing moment. Um, I want to say before I read this text, uh, the first paragraph and get started here, today I want to, I want to lean on uh, Mark's account and Luke's account as well. Uh, the stories that we're reading today are reflected in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they each give a little different flavor. I don't always pull in the other flavors, but today I'm going to very specifically because there's some emotional elements that Luke grabs a hold of and some personal elements that Mark comments on, I, I just think that help us to think about what's going on here. So uh, be prepared for me to do that. I don't mean to diminish Matthew at all by doing so. But let's read, first of all, that, that closing paragraph of chapter 20 uh, for this first part of, of our text today. Matthew 20, starting verse 29, the word of God says this, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. Now, this beginning part of our overall narrative today finds Jesus in Jericho, headed toward Jerusalem. Luke's gospel tells us that this, uh, prior to this point in the story that he had set his face to go up to Jerusalem. He was on his way to that final appointment with the cross and the empty tomb. So Jesus is on his way. If you follow just geographically the Roman mileage, the Roman road, it would have been about 17 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. Uh, You think, man, that's a bit of a journey. Well, sure, uh, I think it gains about 3,000 feet as you go up to Jerusalem from Jericho, 3,000 feet in elevation. Um, which tells you several things. Not all of the crowd in this particular paragraph is the same crowd as that which greets him at Jerusalem, though perhaps some would go along. And we might think uh, to ourselves, 17 miles? I would never, would never walk 17. When's the last time you walked 17 miles anywhere? Well, to people who are used to traveling by foot, that may be not quite as jarring as it would be to some of us. But nonetheless, uh, achievable in a day if you, if you, if you move. Uh, it's not bad. 17 miles or so. And on the way then, uh, 
Two blind men, as Matthew calls them, other gospels will say one, perhaps uh, because one was more the spokesperson, as Mark's gospel seems to indicate, Bartimaeus. This is Bartimaeus. We often call him blind Bartimaeus, perhaps the spokesperson. But Mark is the only one who calls him out by name. And here comes, here comes Jesus. Uh, the crowd, speaking of who it is, certainly they hear the crowd. And I mention on your study sheet here, in chapter 21, as he gets to Jerusalem, the crowd asks, who is this? And, of course, that's reminiscent of the disciples in other settings, saying, who is this? You remember the disciples watching Jesus calm the storm. Remember this? And, and wondering together, what kind of man is this? Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who is this? And so in this part of the text, the identity of Jesus is really important. Who is this? Who is this? Well, the two blind men hear of Jesus passing by and begin to cry out, not knowing where he is in the crowd. And so they cry out. It's repeated twice. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. Now, this isn't the first time someone has identified Jesus as son of David in the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen that a number of times where the theme, son of David, shows up. And of course, you know this because you were here at Christmas. And we did our Christmas play on David, shepherd, warrior, king, based on 2 Samuel 7, where we spent a whole month preaching Christmas time about those themes. Jesus, the greater son of David, King David, uh, a forerunner of a greater king yet to come. And we looked at those prophetic elements. Well, here then, these two blind men, as with others in the Gospels, believe that it's him. And so they're calling out for help using that title, Jesus, son of David. It's a prophetic title. It's it's a faith-built title. It's it's saying, we believe it's you. You're the king who was to come. You're the one who's to sit on the throne of David. It's you. So it's a statement of faith. They're not just saying whoever that is. They're calling out, believing Jesus is this this prophesied Messiah to come. The crowd, so helpful. Okay, not. Rebuking them, telling them to be silent. Now, why would you do that? Why would you do that? These two People are very much in need. You recall from other sermons uh, how we have talked about social elements in the time of Jesus. For two blind men, what are you going to do? I mean, you're, you're dependent on family and friends and passers-by for, for money to eat. You, you can't work a normal job. Uh, many would view them as under some kind of a curse of God uh, for their circumstances. Often people in the day did that. It's clearly God has, has looked with disfavor upon you. You must have sinned somehow, uh, the story of John 9, who, who sinned that this is the case. And so here they are calling out for mercy. I just want you to think with me about this on your study sheet there. Uh, I list several things about what the blind men know and believe. Clearly, they, they know enough of Jesus' reputation to have hope that they could ask him something. They know enough about him to say, why not? Why not ask him? Why not ask him for something big? And they do. They know enough of scripture to see Jesus, the son of David. And, and I say here, they know enough to cry out. They know enough to cry out for mercy. I, I, I sometimes mention themes that run through scripture. There are big themes and there are Minor themes, no less important. 
And if you w would like to study these things, um, you could do a wor very worthwhile study on those who cry out to God in the scripture. There are, there are many who at certain, typically crisis points in their life, they know enough to cry out to God for mercy. And it's a statement of faith. It's a statement of desperation. It's a, it's a call for help. It's an awareness. I, I, I can't fix this by myself. It's, I'm in over my head. I, I, I have nowhere else to go. Nobody else who understands. Um, I have no other resources. It typically is the case. And so here, this, this crying out to God, I, I, it speaks so powerfully to me because there have been times in my life that I will remember as long as I live specific moments. I don't mean like dozens and dozens. There's prayer times. Yes, I know. But I'm talking about those moments that are just where you cry out to God. You say, oh God, if you don't show up here, I have no answer. I am out of gas. Done. So help, help, help. I've prayed very short prayers at times. Like help, help. That's this. I think that's this. Crying out, son of God, or son of, son of David, help, crying out. So some of you perhaps know a bit about that. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Some of you know about that. Some of you cry out to God now in a circumstance that is very personal to you. I know that. And you cry out, if you cry out to him, you cry out to the right one. In this case, Jesus passing by. Jesus, that, that cry, crying out, is enough to stop him in his tracks. I love that. Mention on your study sheet Jesus' or purposeful question. <laughs> you ever wonder about these things? Some of you do when it comes to prayer. Why do you think Jesus asked the question that he did in verse 32? What is that about? Why did he ask? What do you want me to do for you? I mean, <laughs> is it not obvious? What do you think? I'm not asking you for a quarter, okay? Jesus Son of David, have mercy. What would you like me to do? This is reminiscent of you or somebody near you who says to you, why should we, why should we pray if God already knows? You ever wondered that? Why should I pray? I mean, I'm just going to say, God, here's my, here's my need. Apparently, Jesus believed there was a value in giving them an opportunity to say it. Isn't that interesting? And when Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? They didn't say some kind of snide, sarcastic remark like, well, you know, duh. Uh, they didn't. They didn't. They laid their request out. And I, I take that to give some indication that Jesus, in this case, saw a value in these two guys articulating their need. And maybe, maybe for them, certainly for us, I know it's this way for me, hopefully for you, sometimes in making your request, it gives you an opportunity to think carefully about what you're asking and maybe to clarify your motive a little bit. Maybe to even pull the request back and pray for something else completely. Has that ever happened to you as you prayed? You thought you wanted blank, but as you sorted it through before the Lord, you said, no, I don't mean it quite like that. I, this really is. I think that's a really good process because sometimes we pray uh, for what isn't the main thing. You ever notice that? 
sometimes in praying for um, a wayward child or someone else we love, we end up praying that they won't do something stupid. It seems reasonable, doesn't it? When in fact, the real need is, oh God, turn that person's heart to you. And maybe the doing of something stupid will be the path that God will lead them to do that. And we're busy saying, oh God, and maybe we're praying for the wrong thing sometime. Well, I, I, I speak too much about that little uh, angle, but I think it's interesting. If you study the questions Jesus asked, this is an interesting one. What do you want me to do for you? And they answer, Lord, here's our need. Let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately, immediately, they recovered their sight and followed him. Wow. Now, the healer, the son of David, uh, my section there on your study notes, those two themes, uh, those two titles, I think, are reflective directly out of the text. Why did I include Passover lamb here? I'll tell you why. Uh, This text is describing uh, Jesus coming to Jerusalem at Passover time when he will die as the Passover lamb, right? You know what's going on around the Jerusalem area at this time? As if you study history and even uh, to some degree today, but certainly then, as Passover time would draw near, there was a hubbub of activity. People going up on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover there. A gathering of Passover lambs that would have been cared for for days in advance with families and so on. But there was, there, there was a, it was like a, a, a festival. It was. It was a big deal. Passover lambs being examined and made sure that they were well and Passover lambs coming toward Jerusalem. Jesus, of course, the Passover lamb, identified by John, John one twenty nine. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's coming to Jerusalem too. And I just think here, interesting. He's, interestingly, he's leaving Jericho. And he's, on his, he's on his way with all kinds of other pilgrims and yet lambs headed toward Jerusalem. That's the way my brain works. Sorry, that's what you get to. Well, the, you come then to the next section, the beginning of chapter 21, where we read the story of what we call Palm Sunday proper. And we read this, chapter 21, 1 through 11, God's word says this, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, as other gospels say they did, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? The crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Wow, what a scene this is 
as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, these two animals. Now, Matthew, I think Matthew alone is the one who mentions two animals, a donkey and a colt. The other gospels speak of one animal. Now, this has led to some amount of consternation by those who misread grammar. Surely not you. But as you come to verse 7, uh, you have the donkey and the colt. Put on, they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. To what does them refer? Cloaks. Thank you. There have been those who said, how did he sit on both of them? I mean, that's pretty awkward. He sat on them. He sat on both animals. No, the cloaks. It's the cloaks. Them is multiple cloaks. So there you go. Relax. It's okay. Don't try to picture Jesus on two animals. He's okay. He sat on the cloaks. But nonetheless, this, this riding on a donkey was, was striking in itself historically, and it fulfilled prophecy. Prophet Zechariah, and the text is given to you there. Your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, one writer speaks about why this is so striking. So I'm going to read just a little bit here, and I'll let this little paragraph speak for itself about why this is so striking. This writer says this, it's laughable to think about a Roman emperor straddled over such a slow, dirty, undignified, and unpretentious beast. It would be like the president coming into Chicago, traveling down the magnificent mile on a tricycle. When a king comes to town, the expectation is that he will ride proudly on a battle steed at the head of a parade of decorated troops as Alexander the Great did when he rode into Jerusalem 332 BC. And yet the prophet Zechariah envisions a king who will ride into Jerusalem mounted on the foal of a donkey. And how striking it ought to have been. The contrast to anybody who's culturally aware. Uh, the king is coming. The king is coming. Where's the white horse? Where's the army? Where are all the captives? No, no. It's a king on a donkey. Now, those who knew their Old Testament scriptures should have been saying, and no doubt some in the crowd were, saying, this is that. This moment is that moment. This is the part spoken by Zechariah the prophet. The king is coming. This should have been like a big arrow, those big construction arrows that point in a direction. You can't miss them, right? It should have been that. Look, the king is coming, and here he is, riding on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of the beast, a beast of burden, not a white horse. Now, again, following the text and following my notes, the crowd responds with scripture-based praise, echoing the words of Psalm 118. Um, Luke mentioned that earlier today. The words of Psalm 118, Psalm 118 and Psalm 110 are, are together probably the most quoted Old Testament texts in, in the New Testament Psalm 118 was part of this section of the Psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, well known for these festival-type celebrations, well quoted, known to, known to the Jewish crowd. In other words, these same words would have been sung on other Passovers, not just this one. It would easily have been sung and quoted as pilgrims went up to Jerusalem other years, except this time, Jesus is among them. Hosanna to the son of David, save, save now. It's a song of praise. It's a song of request. Hosanna is not just about praise, hallelujah, of course, praise, 
hallelujah, praise to God, but, but Hosanna, save us now, God. Send your salvation. So an Old Testament text, Old Testament word, so to speak, that calls out for God to do what he's promised to do. Save us. Help us. Now, to read Psalm 118, uh, if you read especially toward the latter part, you'll find several verses. You say, I know that one. It's, it's here or it's here. It's in Peter references that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You've heard me say this before. We sing that song with our kids to say any day. We sing it at summer camp. This is the day. And it means in that context, every day you sing it. In Psalm 118, it isn't about that at all. It's about this, this, what day? This day of redemption. It's about a day, not every day. So I'm not going to get after us for singing, this is the day the Lord has made. There's other theology that would say that to every day, a gift from God. Yes, but in text, in the context, it's about this day of redemption. And here it is. Jesus is here. Messiah is here. God is going to fulfill his promises to save us. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna, save now. They're quoting scripture and singing. You notice now, significantly, Jesus doesn't say, Oh, hold on, you guys. Hold on. That's not, you've got it all wrong. Don't, you shouldn't sing those kinds of songs about me. I'm just a normal guy. He doesn't, he receives, he receives the praise aiming, that's aimed at a Messiah, a savior, and he receives it. Now, Psalm, uh, sorry, Luke 19, gave you the text here someplace. Yes, the consternation of the religious leaders. In Luke 19, the religious leaders said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Remember this? And this is the moment where Jesus says, no, if these are silent, remember, the stones will cry out. Wow, no, this is a day for praise. This is a perfect day. This is a beautiful day. This is a day when praise is the right thing. And for people coming, wow, did did all the people in the crowd, think about this with me, did all the people in the crowd have a perfect life that day? No. No, they're just like you and me. But it was a moment for praise. It was a moment that said, you know what? Problems, yes, yes, I have a few. But it's a moment for praise, and I will do it. I will give praise to this coming Savior, this Son of David. I will sing praise to him today. Problems aside. I, I appreciate that. Uh, whatever they carried that day, no, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is this one. Save us now. Now, Look with me at this next little section. Some of you like to, to think about, uh, I hate to call it more scholarly, but that's what I'll give you, uh, this kind of thing. A number of scholars believe that this day, this day of presentation, Jesus being presented to the nation, here he comes, fulfillment of scripture, riding into Jerusalem, uh, presented as Messiah. There's a lot of pages written about this moment from that angle. There are some scholars who believe that this day, this specific day, this exact day, is the day precisely spoken of by Daniel 9.25, exactly 483 years after the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. There are some scholars who have worked it out by years. Said, I have read one of them, 
some years ago. There are others who have engaged in that. Uh, those kinds of writings deal with history and events and earthquakes and the rise and fall of kings and calendars that are found or lost. And you can get lost in details really quickly. I read one, and that's what it was. It was Sir Robert Anderson's book, um, the title of which I have now forgotten, and most of what he said. But the book was about that. It was his apologetic for why this day was exactly 383 year, uh, years later than the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. He said, no, it's that day. Now, uh, other scholars have said, boy, I'm really not sure about the, some of the other dates and so on. A couple of them have worked it out. Luke's gospel would lend itself toward an understanding that it was that day in particular. Not a proof, but it would lean that direction. It would, it, would, it would give evidence for that, for those who would have that kind of a mindset. Because there are parts of, in Luke's gospel where, it says, where Jesus says, if you had known this day, if you only knew this day, this is the day of your visitation, he says, if only you knew this day, but you didn't. I'll comment on that in a moment. This day. Well, I'll let you think about that. Some of you may have it in your study notes or in some other book you read. And wonderful to think about and, um, and to wonder about the God of history working it all out just like that. Uh, now, moving on. I, I'd like to mention here the text I alluded to just moments ago, Luke 19. This is a very striking part of the story. Luke mentions it alone. It is one of the places where Jesus weeps. John 11, Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Luke 19, Jesus weeps as he comes toward Jerusalem. Um, why? Why? Luke 19, Jesus, this, this great moment, the crowd, the praise, uh, palm branches, and a weeping Messiah. And he weeps because he knows that the people, for all the praise that day, that they don't really get it, it seems. He, he weeps over this. Oh, if you only knew, if you only knew. But you don't. You don't, you don't see. You don't understand. I know you don't. And then he says, and because I know you don't, he looks ahead to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He's coming into Jerusalem uh, ostensibly uh, 30 A.D., um, 70 A.D., the Roman legions under Titus are going to come and lay siege to the city and take it down stone by stone. Jesus references that in Luke 19. He weeps over you. They're going to take, they're going to take away the city. Stone, they're not going to be left one stone upon another that's not going to be torn down. And I can just picture Jesus surrounded by those people, children running around, in whose lifetime this will take place. And Jesus knows it, apparently. He's praying about it. He's crying about it. If only you knew this day, the things that make for peace. But no, you don't. You don't know. I, I, I so identify with the angst that Jesus has in that Luke text. Matthew doesn't mention it, but um, I think it's an important part of the story for me personally. The angst of Jesus, longing for people, yes, to sing his praise, but to believe him and to believe in him from the heart. Well, there you have it. I mentioned my uh, surmisings here about the weather, beautiful, warm, sunny day, storm clouds, yes, in the distance. Now, uh, the text includes reasons to believe and reasons to celebrate both, uh, hence my title for the morning. Reasons to believe, yes, this healer who is able, even on the way up to Jerusalem, to, to heal the blind, this, this healer called out for that, known for it, is Jesus. Well, then ask him for help. 
this, this healer, the son of David, so identified, on his way up to Jerusalem. Reasons to believe in him. There are plenty. Reasons to celebrate the fulfillment of prophecy. God sending a savior long awaited. Prophecies fulfilled very, very specifically. Reasons to believe. Now, I have a section here called the rest of the story, what the crowd didn't know. And I just want to talk about this for a moment. There's some things they didn't know that day. We do. We step back from the immediate story and we look back, we look in to what's taking place. The, the crowd didn't know that within a week, this Messiah they celebrated would be nailed to a Roman cross there to die a wicked death along with their shattered dreams. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to zip over to, math, uh, to Luke 19 for a moment. I want to pick up a verse. Uh, come with me if you like or not. But uh, Luke's telling of the story includes a couple of other things. It's in the end of Luke 18 that you have the story of the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, or the beggars as we've seen in Matthew. Then you have the story of Zacchaeus, as Luke tells, and Matthew doesn't. And then you read in verse 11, as they heard these things, just proceeding, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And look at this. They, they, they supposed, who's they? It's the disciples of Jesus. They supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They believed, we've been talking about this through our study of Matthew, the followers of Jesus believed that this Messiah, is gonna, he's going to head right into the kingdom. They knew the Old Testament. Remember early on in our study of Matthew, we focused on the, the introduction of this idea of kingdom. We went to Old Testament texts, um, of which there are many, that look at this coming kingdom and the followers of Jesus were growing in their understanding. This is him. This kingdom, the wolf's going to lie down with the lamb and peace and harmony and creation. And it's going to be great. And Jesus, in our study of Matthew, he's just talked about you all, he said, who've served with me. You're going to sit on these tribes judging the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And his followers are going, yes, this is going to be so cool. So they're coming up to Jerusalem and they're supposing the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately, which means... Palm Sunday, it follows right after this. It's in Luke 19. He tells a story of a nobleman going on a journey um, and then right into Palm Sunday. Well, they're supposing. I, can just, I try to get inside the heads of the disciples. So here you go. You're Jesus riding on a donkey, the crowd. What are the disciples doing? We're with him, right? Uh, yeah, they're following the big guy. Uh, here he is. Everybody's praising uh, Jesus and, and they're with him. I picture, you know how, you remember this from junior high, you have some tough guy walking in the, down the hall and then there's a little posse behind him, right? They're nothing, but they're with him. So they think he can beat up everybody. So you just kind of walk with him. I digress. Jesus coming on a colt and the disciples of Jesus, I can just picture him going, excuse me, excuse me. Pushing the crowds back. We got this. We got, yes, yes, we're, we're, we're with him. It's okay. Step back. Step back. Maybe not. I don't want to beat him up too badly. But Luke says they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. It was on their minds, this whole procession. It's time going up to Jerusalem, thrones, kicking out the Romans. This is going to be great. I mention that because they were, they were riding high. And within a week, all those dreams shattered. 
You see that in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus is Jesus, unbeknownst to them, walks with those two as they say to this resurrected Savior that they don't recognize, we had hoped, past tense, we had hoped that he would be the one to deliver Israel. We'd hoped, in other words, those hopes are gone. They were riding very high this Palm Sunday and within a week from the height to the depth. Just, just imagine, you have, to, you have to capture the height of the day, the beauty of the day, the perfection of the day, to, to understand the, the, what they went through with the cross when they forsook him. We're going to be there Friday night, forsaken. When the disciples forsook him and fled, what did they forsake? Come Friday night. It was more than Jesus. They forsook, oh, so much. They ran. Well, they didn't understand the shattered dreams. They didn't understand on your study notes. They didn't know that it was necessary for Christ to die in that fashion and then rise from the dead. It was necessary. There's a section on your study notes for community group that I ask you to to do some theology work there about why. Why was it necessary? And I I grabbed that term. It's a wonderful uh, uh, trigger to step into some good study. And it comes from the lips of the crucified and risen Savior. Again, in Luke 24, when Jesus walks with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus and they're saying their dreams are shattered. And he says, oh, oh, slow of heart, foolish, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Was it not necessary, he says? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer in this fashion? It was necessary. Why? Why was it necessary? And if you do the study that I invite you to do there, you're going to see a number of reasons the Bible gives why it was necessary that Christ should suffer and die. Certainly, payment for our sin in full, uh, satisfying the wrath of a holy God. Oh, study those things, read. Now, the other, the other element, the third and final, they didn't know that there'd be two, please pay attention to this, two comings of Messiah Jesus. They didn't understand that. They thought there was one. Jesus would come, and they didn't see the suffer and die part, though he kept talking about it, that they just saw him ruling and reigning and taking over the place. They didn't understand two comings, Jesus as redeemer and a second coming as judge and king. Now, we're not going to preach it today because there's not time, but the parable Jesus tells in, in Luke 19, again, not included in Matthew's gospel, it's telling about this gap between first coming and second coming. It, it spells it out. That's the point of the story of the nobleman leaving and then coming back, and I, I want to read here that from this book that I've given you, footnote from, did you know there's a whole book called The Theology of the Kingdom of God? And it covers Genesis to Revelation, um, the biblical theology of the kingdom of God. It's a really cool book. Michael Vlock, uh, he's a professor at Master Seminary in California, and he's written this very helpful book. He references everything about the, the theme and the, 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 the terms kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, through the whole Bible. And there's a, a little part here I'm going to read, and this will head us toward close today. But his, the point of his little story here is that this idea of first coming, going away, and coming again would have been well known in Jesus' day based on some politics, okay? And therefore, it would inform our theology, our understanding of the future. Jesus coming the first time as redeemer, coming a second time uh, as, re- as king and judge. So Michael Vlock says this. Again, he's speaking about the parable in Luke 19, though we are not primarily there today. He says, the historical background for this parable came from actual events in the political history of the times. Who'd know that? 
Well, here you go. He says it was regular procedure for native princes to journey to Rome to receive their right to rule. The case of Herod Archelaus, from who, with whom Jesus' listeners would have been familiar, was one example. His father, Herod the Great, the army had proclaimed Archelaus a leader, but Archelaus did not have the right to rule till he first received official permission from Caesar Augustus in Rome. This involved traveling for many months. Some Jews followed Archelaus to Rome to contest his petition to rule over them. In 4 BC, Caesar Augustus granted Archelaus authority over Samaria, Judea, uh, Idumea, to the dismay of Archelaus' opponents. Then there was a, so in other words, there was a process, he says, between Archelaus uh, being pronounced the ruler and when he began to rule. Authority was first given, and then the kingdom became his when he returned. And he's just pointing out that Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant, a redeemer. And then he was to go away for a while in a pattern that would have been understood at the time and come again to live out that kingdom time. So very interesting uh, little account there from, from Michael Vlock. Some of you like to think about such things. I hope you do. I want to clarify one area of eschatology, of future things, because this gets muddied a lot. Sometimes people talk about this first coming of Jesus, and then they look ahead and they talk about the second coming, by which they often mean the return of Jesus in the event we call the rapture of the church. That is theologically imprecise, not picking on you, just saying. Biblically, the second coming is not referring to the coming of Jesus in the clouds, but referring to the end of it all when he returns to earth, to the Mount of Olives again. When we talk about the rapture of the church, that isn't technically a coming to earth. It's a return of Jesus for the believers in the clouds of 1 Thessalonians 4. But when we talk about first coming, second coming, I spell it out because I've been asked, so you actually don't believe in two comings. You believe in three, don't you? Huh, so much for your theology. And I said, no, 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 I believe in two comings, the first coming and the second coming and the rapture of the church. That's not a coming. We meet him in the clouds. Let's get it right. So, uh, things to debate over coffee, uh, but nonetheless important. All of this to say as you look at response, okay? Do you feel creation groaning? Yes, you do. You do. And there's coming a day when Jesus will come again. This ideal day foretold in this text, Palm Sunday, there will be another day when he comes but it'll be the final day, that looking ahead to that final second coming, moving through all of, a whole lot of other details, is coming another day when King Jesus comes. Fully, finally, I'm looking at that part, that second coming at the end. Judge, King, yes. And I ask you here to think about the weightiness of sin that you feel, the brokenness around us, creation, society, illness, brokenness of bodies, age, broken relationships, disappointments, Longings of the heart forever unfulfilled. Do you feel it? Amen. Yes. And then I ask you here to think about something specific. Some area in your life, even today, that would be a good opportunity for you to cry out, oh, oh Lord, have mercy, son of David. To cry out to him yourself about a specific area of need w- without having to worry about whether he understands you. you know, do I have to say, yes, just cry out to him. Take the example of these two guys who cried out to God and knew that they had an audience with him. There's a song 
I just want you to hear the words of, and then I'll pray for us. Um, you should look this up on YouTube if you haven't. Find it some other place called Is He Worthy? Is He Worthy? Andrew Peterson. And just, it, it's, it's a beautiful um, song. It's, the way it's sung is the guy at the piano sings a question, and then the ensemble and ultimately the whole crowd sings the answer. It's based on Revelation 5. But just hear this. He starts like this. Do you feel the world is broken? The answer is, we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? The answer, we do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. He asks again, is all creation groaning? The answer, it is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. And then the, 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 the large refrain, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal, open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root, and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. It's a wonderful song. There's more to it. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is. He is. Stand with me. I want to pray for us as we go. Father, our minds go back to this first Palm Sunday, the glory of the day, no doubt, that attended to Jesus as he came into the city where he was soon to pour out his life's blood on our behalf. And that, that moment, that perfect day, that praise of, of old and young alike, the presentation of the king, soon to be rejected, man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Father, the, the events of this week we celebrate and we remember today all that we get to remember in these coming days as we walk the road toward Friday, the cross of Jesus, and next Sunday, the empty tomb. Our Father, would you give us opportunity to pause, to remember, yes, the brokenness of the world, and yet the one who came to make it whole again pay for our sins so we could be redeemed by you. And Father, I pray that all in the sound of my voice here or listening later would be drawn to Jesus through whom alone they can be saved. Father, give us hunger and appetite for you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.